0: The following is a podcast from Live it, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livetmke.org. Palm Sunday is actually uh, the same, it's the same concept every year, regardless of what your theme is for Palm Sunday. The concept of Palm Sunday is the picture of a king, there we go, thank you. A king riding into Jerusalem, but a king that is unlike any other king that you've seen before. Okay, so uh, he is a king, but he's an otherworldly kind of king. You're supposed to notice both things. If you see him only as a king, you're not noticing enough. If you see him only as lowly, you're not noticing enough. You have to see him as both a triumphant king and a lowly servant in order to truly grasp the the otherworldly beauty that is the concept of Palm Sunday. Uh, So today, what I want to do is I want to share with you, because it's a new concept, because it's a different concept, I want to show you uh, the difference between Jesus and a typical king. So I need you in your heads to pick out somebody that you think, real or fictional, who would be a typical sort of king. Um, You know, one of the kings of the Lord of the Rings, uh, King Richard the Lionhearted, uh, King Triton, King Arthur, I I don't care. Okay, picture King Arthur trotting on into Lancelot and compare that, or Camelot, excuse me, and and picture that against Jesus trotting into Jerusalem and see what the difference really is. I'm going to help point out a couple of those things here real quick because it's always important to notice certain uh, nuances in a text. First of all, the transportation. An earthly king like King Arthur coming into Camelot is going to have a gallant, valiant, uh, noble, regal, majestic white steed, right? There's your typical king, those words that you only use to describe the regality of a king. That's an earthly king. Jesus, on the other hand, when he comes on into Jerusalem, he trots in on this thing. And I'm talking about the smaller one there, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That thing doesn't, it's, now maybe his was a little bit larger than that, but he, it seems like he could just sort of like walk it in. You know, like he didn't even have to actually ride the thing. It probably was lowly enough and uh, certainly not, remember in, in Ze- our Zechariah reading, we heard about a war horse. This is no war horse. Uh, this is, in fact, the, the Greek word that's translated uh, for the colt, the full of a donkey here, is it can also be translated as a pony. Now, it wasn't a pony that he rode in on, but that gives you the level of ferocity uh, and, and the intensity of the, of the trot into Jerusalem, okay? Okay. Um, Gandalf rides in on shadow fox, a king rides in on thunderclap, and Jesus rolls in on little buttercup. Okay? There's the difference. Transportation. He's a king, but he's not a king like one in this world. Uh, The expectation. An earthly king, when he conquers uh, the enemy, let's say he slays the dragon, then he enters into the city and he immediately shoots to the top of the social scene. If he wasn't king yet, he is made the king. He sits on his throne, he rules in his palace, he rules over the kingdom, he gets all the riches, he gets all the beautiful women, he gets Jesus very different. Uh, in some ways the expectation of Jesus was more, in some ways the expectation of Jesus was less. You'll notice the hymn that the people were singing when he when he wrote into Jerusalem. It wasn't just a song that they made up. They shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna is a word that means. Save me. Save me. They're quoting, actually, at this point, they're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It's the same Psalm that several verses earlier, actually, we hear uh, the words, "...the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes." This is a very clear reference to the Messiah. In other words, what we have here is a a typical king gets the riches and the palace and the, the beautiful women. Jesus has no money. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he says in his ministry. And he, so far as we can tell, never has one romantic kiss. His most famous kiss is a kiss of betrayal. Not a typical king. Finally, the reception, an earthly king, when he slays the dragon and maybe he brings, to uh, in the ancient legends, in the ancient myths, you bring the animal's head back to prove that you'd killed it, right? So he brings the dragon's head that he slayed, uh, brings it into the city and all the people shout for joy and he's universally received uh, with praise because of what he has already accomplished. Now, by the way, this is a little bit of an aside, but I want you to understand where that concept comes from, uh, the the conquering king who slayed the dragon and now lives happily ever after. For a moment, just let your mind go back to Genesis 3, the first promise of a Savior. Okay? Uh, It's called the Protevangel. After Adam and Eve fall into sin, God comes and he finds them and he, he says, he promises, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he, one special offspring from the woman, will crush your head. He will cut off your head and you will strike his heel. Remember what Satan took the form of, a serpent. You know it's interesting? That every single culture in history has some story of a conquering warrior who slays a dragon who cuts off its head and goes victoriously into a city. Where do you think that comes from? it's part of the collective non-consciousness of mankind. It's part of all of our history. That's why all cultures work it into their literature somewhere. The slaying of a great dragon where you cut off its head and praise the conquering hero. Now, uh, the thing I want you to really notice here is that when the people praise Jesus, he hasn't cut off the serpent's head yet. In other words, when the people of the city slay the dragon, they cut off the dragon. He comes into the city and they praise him for what he has done. But when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they're praising him without having slayed the dragon yet. In other words, they're praising him by faith. They haven't seen his resurrection glory yet. As part of his kingdom, we're praising him not only for things that he has done, but for things that he hasn't done yet, yet that we believe are as good as gold because he's promised them to us. We praise him as a king and we praise him by faith. Furthermore, the reception. When the people of the city see the conquering warrior come in, they universally praise him for saving the city. But when Jesus trots into Jerusalem, there's mixed reviews. Some of the people are really appreciative of him. Largely, uh, it's many of the same people who are at Lazarus, uh, his friend's funeral. We talked about him raising Lazarus from the grave a couple weeks ago. Uh, they're praising him because they know the power of his resurrection. But some others, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, just look at him as undermining their authority and they are rejecting him. So there's not a universal praise. He's a different kind of king with a different kind of reception. So again, here's the idea. Jesus is, in fact, a king. As he says to Pontius Pilate, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world and therefore the glory that you pursue as a Christian should, yes, in fact, be godly glory, but it is not the kind of glory that we perceive in this world. Today's theme for worship is rising out of glory and we're contrasting Christ's glory and Christian glory with the glory that we find in the world. When you die and rise with Christ, when, let me put it in the words of this text, when Jesus Christ rides into your city, you stop pursuing earthly glory, you start pursuing kingdom glory, which means the light is no longer shining on you, the light is shining on him through your obedience to him. And you're only obedient because he was first obedient to his father. Okay? Okay. Here's the idea. The big idea this week is a unique kind of glory, an otherworldly glory found in an otherworldly king. And that glory is seen by the obedience of true followers, by the obedience of all creation, too. And number three, why would we be obedient? Why is all creation obedient? Because Jesus is, in fact, the benevolent, perfect king. Okay? God's glory, his kingdom of glory, is most clearly seen by the obedience of, of true followers, the obedience of all creation, and the obedience of the Son, who is really the benevolent, perfect king. Let's look at this one first. I've got two examples in our text of the obedience of true followers. First example is just the believing crowd. I mentioned earlier that uh, when the people praise him when he's coming into the city, they don't praise him just for being a king or another king. They praise him for being the king the messianic king who came from the line of David to take away the sins of the world. Uh, And they show acts of worship to him. They get palm branches, they take off their cloaks, their outer coats, and they place them on the ground saying, Jesus, yes, you are a king. What that is, really, is the, the public nature of worshiping God. Notice what they're doing on that first Palm Sunday. The believers gather together, they quote scripture, They sing praises, they confess a unified faith in who Jesus is as the Son of God, and they also express a collective faith in what Jesus is going to do for them, that he can and will do for them. How is that not public worship? One of the the biggest concepts that I work on, especially with young adults, common, very, very common concept, and some of you are, are listening right now via podcast, and you're thinking, I can do a relationship with God just by kind of consuming Christian sources here and there and I can consume God apart from a relationship with the Christian church. No, you can't. The church is the body of Christ. What does it do? It gets together. It cites scripture. It confesses a common faith in Jesus as Savior. It sings praises to God and it confesses a faith collectively in what God will do for us moving forward. That's what I see on Palm Sunday. That's the more obvious obedience that I see. There's also a more subtle obedience, okay? The subtle obedience is the two disciples. I don't know if you caught them, they're at the very beginning of the text. And uh, after, so Jesus, at the very beginning of the text, he gives instruction to these two disciples to go into the town of Bethphagee. Bethphagee and Bethany are kind of twin cities south and east of Jerusalem. They're on the way to Jerusalem. And when Jesus announces, when Jesus announces that they're going into the city of Jerusalem, he, he says, I want you to go into the city and these you, two of you grab this colt, which is the foal of a donkey, I want you to take it and bring it back here to me because I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. So the way I imagine this is Jesus is basically giving off, we're going into Jerusalem, Everybody's exci- is excited, they've been waiting their entire ministry, his entire ministry for this moment he says, I need you guys to do this for me, you guys to do that for me, you guys to do that for me, and you two, you go into Bethphage and get this colt that's tied up and take it, and if anybody questions you on that, I want you to say, the Lord needs it, and that'll cover it. So, you know, dutiful disciples are all, they're all doing their jobs, and these two go into Bethphage, and, and along the way, they've got to be, if you're putting yourself in their shoes, they've got to be asking themselves, wait a second, did Jesus just ask us to go steal a baby donkey? Is that what we're doing right now? Is this, in other words, here's my point. It would have been very rational to seek some clarification here. Jesus, are you sure we should just, do you need this baby donkey? Uh, Are you sure you don't want a more impressive horse than this? Are you sure you don't want us to bring along some loose change just in case they say, ah, don't take my donkey, don't just steal my donkey, you're going to have to pay me for that? Are you sure you don't want me to offer a better explanation, a more thorough explanation than the Lord needs it? That's all you got to say. It would have been reasonable to seek greater clarification on what Jesus is asking them to do, but they don't. They just do it. This is one of the marks of genuine Christian faith and true discipleship. When God is asking you to do some things in your life that you don't understand, but you just do it because you trust that he's right. That means you have an actual relationship with him, okay? You can't have a a real meaningful relationship with somebody unless you trust them. When he says to do things and you don't understand why but you do them anyways, that means you have a real relationship. So, practically speaking in your life, uh, let me just give you a couple quick examples. You could say, God, I don't know why having a sexual relationship outside of prior to marriage would be wrong. The whole world seems to be doing it. They seem to be enjoying it. There doesn't seem to be any stigma attached to it. It makes perfect sense to me, but very clearly you say in your word, don't do this. So whether or not it makes sense to me is not the point. I trust you. I can do this. Jesus, you tell me it's very important for me to give away large portions of my income in generosity to others. And that's, that actually somehow contributes to my overall financial health and, and wellness and, and perspective and, and that doesn't make any sense to me. That makes, seems completely counterintuitive to me and yet very clearly, Jesus, you say it. So whether or not I understand it, I can do this. Jesus, that person has sinned against me and wronged me so severely they absolutely do not deserve my forgiveness. And yet, when you taught me to pray, you said, forgive others, not as not an optional thing, forgive others in the same way that I have forgiven you. Whether or not I understand it, whether or not I like it, that's really not the point. Jesus, I trust you, I can do this. When you do things that God tells you to do, especially when you don't understand them, that's one of the marks of genuine faith in him. Uh, One of the commentators I read named Werner Franzman, put it like this. He said, It's to their credit that these two disciples did not hesitate to obey Jesus' order. Instead, they just believed that their Lord knew all things. He goes on to say, Let's do our Lord's will with that same kind of unquestioning obedience, since he is our all-wise Savior whose heart is filled with love for us. Therefore, all his directions for our life can only be aimed at our lasting good. Then we will resist the temptation to quibble about his will in this or that matter, saying, But Lord, doing this might cost me money. It might make me less popular. I might not have as much fun. One of the marks of true discipleship is when you do things that you don't understand, but you know very clearly the Lord has asked you to do it, so you just do it. It's one of the evidences that you really trust him. Now, God's glory is seen. the obedience of believers, it's also seen seen through the obedience of all creation. The first point I want to highlight here is the stones. Now we never actually, at the beginning of the lesson, we never actually read anything about the stones. It's mentioned in the other gospel accounts. uh, When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, uh, the Pharisees are really upset about this because the people are making an uproar and he says, I need you to quiet your disciples and followers down. And he says, "Uh uh-uh. Because even if I quieted them down, then the rocks would cry out. The stones would cry out. Now, commentators have said that means a bunch of different things. It's not actually in our text here from Matthew tonight, so I'm not going to go into it too deep. It'd be interesting to go down the rabbit hole of what exactly the stones will cry out means. But at face value, at face value, what it means and, and certainly could mean is that Jesus is saying, even if another human alive wouldn't praise me, the stones would praise me. In fact, when a stone is being a stone, it is praising God. It testifies to his goodness. But in, because it's not in our text, I want to jump to something that is. The stones are obedient to Jesus, but so is another non, you wouldn't say non-animate, but non-human in the text. The colt, the little baby donkey. In this text, Jesus demonstrates his kingdom rule over this donkey. Our text says, you notice, why does the Holy Spirit go out of the way to say this is a baby? why a baby colt? You ever think about that? Uh, how many of you, by the way, most of us are kind of city people here on North Ave. How many of you are riders? How many of you have ridden horses or anything like that before? Okay, good. So like two? All right. Uh, so this, this will really resonate then. Uh, if you find an unbroken animal, they don't just let you ride them. It's not like in the cartoons where you just can jump, He-Man can hop on a wild panther and just, like, take off. You know, they don't do that. Uh, You have to, a wild animal needs to be broken, it needs to be tamed, it needs to be controlled and mastered. And so what is a baby cult? It's unbroken. It doesn't know how to let a rider go on it. Uh, In fact, if you try to jump on, like, a donkey or a horse or something like that, it will buck and kick and probably kick you in the face it'll be so angry. And so I want you to notice that not only does Jesus ride this unbroken baby donkey, but he rides it right down the middle of a crowd, a mob of screaming people. And it just keeps going. Um, one of, again, a commentator put it like this. I thought this was good. He said, In the midst of this excitement, an unbroken animal remains calm in the hands of the one who calmed the sea." Now think about this. Why is it that we humans need to break animals before we can control them or ride them in the first place? They're instinctively afraid of us. Why is that? Why are animals naturally a little skeptical and a little cynical about human beings? If, why is it that if you were to come over to my house tonight and you just came in and jumped on my pit bull she's pretty well trained, but it wouldn't probably end well. She's got to sniff your hands first. She's got to learn that she can trust you first. Um, Animals, they don't naturally trust us. Why? Because they're smart and they're intuitive and they know that they shouldn't. They know intuitively that humans can cause a great deal of harm to them. So, you'll notice that Jesus hops up on this little colt and it becomes absolutely fearless in the midst of a crowd. Why? Because he doesn't break it, he heals it. This little unbroken cold is absolutely fearless in the midst of a crowd when Jesus gets into its saddle. Now, some of you already know where I'm going with this. What happens when Jesus gets into the saddle of your life? Does that instantaneously make all the noise of the crowd go away? No. But it heals you, he doesn't break you. What happens when Jesus gets in the saddle of your life? When you let Jesus get to the top position in your life, because all of us have a pedestal that we're trying, that something has to go on. When, When Jesus gets into the driver's seat of your life, what happens? He heals you, he doesn't break you. Now, to the degree that you have Jesus Christ at the center of your life and in the saddle of your life, to that degree, you will be free from fear of anything. Death, Or failure or rejection or sickness or anything else. It doesn't make the crowd less noisy, it makes you calm in the midst of the noise. Jesus is the only master that can control you without destroying you. See, everybody, you're going to get mastered by something. You're going to become obedient to something. You're going to offer praise to something. You're going to be, the apostle Paul says, a slave to something. The only option you get is who or what you want to be a slave to. Who gets to be your master? For some of us, it's going to be money or beauty or our career or the approval of our parents or the approval of our peers or a romantic relationship. You're going to be obedient to something. That's the natural order of created humanity. We weren't built to be independent. We were dependent creatures. The only thing you get to choose is who gets to be in the saddle. And I'm saying to you, Jesus is the only one who can drive you without ever really breaking you. Okay? We see the kingdom, we see the glory, even in the obedience of a tiny, little, simple, lowly donkey. Why should we be obedient? Um, I'd imagine that the disciples were a little confused with the whole Palm Sunday circumstance because it's a little, probably, I don't know, it's probably only been within the past five to ten years where I think I've started to understand what Palm Sunday was actually about, this concept of a king but an otherworldly, lowly kind of king. Um, They're probably confused by Jesus' methodology. Uh, In other words, when they've been waiting, really, not just their ministry, the, the Jews have been waiting their whole lives for the Messiah to finally come and when Jesus says, all right, it's time. I've sort of been avoiding, to some extent, Jerusalem for a while now, but now it's time. We're going to Jerusalem, guys. Let's get ready. My guess is they're like, finally, finally, let's get rid of the Romans. Let's overthrow our oppressors. Jesus, you can expand the borders of our people back to the greatness of the times of the great King David. And then Jesus hops up on this little colt and they've got to be thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Jesus, you are a conquering warrior. You need to ride in on a war horse, and this looks like the penny pony at mire. This can't scare anybody. This can't rule anything. What are you doing? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He is a king, but he's not a worldly king. On the one hand, there's strength, but on the other hand, there's lowliness. There's power and there's vulnerability combined. There's royalty and yet there's accessibility combined. These two things are never combined, those two opposites are never combined in this world but they are combined in Jesus. He's showing his character. He's showing power and majesty that this world knows nothing about. The one who deserves real glory and praise from the entire world is actually coming to humbly serve. And even more than that, to die for crimes that he didn't commit, to die for your sins and my sins. And it's got to be that way. That's the only way it can be. It can't be just a worldly king and it can't be just a lowly servant. It's got to be a lowly king. Why? The theological term is substitutionary or vicarious atonement. What that means is the king comes in lowliness so that we the peasants could one day live in majesty. Or, as the Apostle Paul put it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. For Jesus to save you and me from our sins, he needed to taste every tear of agony. Do you remember last week we said, we're quoting from Psalm 56, and it said that Jesus keeps all our tears in his bottle? He holds on to every single tear that we've ever cried and he justifies them. He takes all of our tears so that he can share with, it, with us all of his glory. Only a king who is not only perfect, but who loves you enough that he wants you to experience his perfection, would die for you like that. And because he did, that means we will live together happily ever after. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one of the greatest stories ever told was the story of a conquering, courageous warrior who risks his life to slay the dragon and enter into the city so that the people can live happily ever after. It's a nice story, but there's one that's even better that it draws from. It's the story of you who courageously, humbly came into our lives, slayed the the dragon Satan, paid for all of our sins and didn't just risk your life but actually gave your life so that we could reign happily ever after as kings and queens. No one has ever loved us like that. Help us to see your beauty more clearly. Help us to walk this week with you to the cross, confess our sins, rejoice in your forgiveness, and rise to live a new life as you resurrected from your grave. Thank you for doing that for, that, for us. Now encourage us in our walk with you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.